It's been one year since the tragedy in Surfside, and many are still trying to grasp what happened. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Tomorrow will mark one year since the Champlain Tower South partially collapsed, killing 98 people. We're talking with a rabbi about the Jewish community's work to heal. Also, we'll hear a powerful story from Surfside on an upcoming Latino USA. She told me, you know, this is incredibly painful and it makes me really sad to tell you all of this, but it's my story, it's my life, and I need people to hear it from me. Also, today is Wildlife Thursday. We're going to look at one of the most beloved species in the state, the Florida panther. But first, a look at Colombia's new president and the role that the Colombian diaspora played in putting him in power. All of that today on Sundial after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. Colombian citizens have voted for their new leader. Gustavo Petro will be the country's first ever left-wing president. His win comes after a strong, long-brewing dissatisfaction from voters with the incumbent powerful right-wing government. But what role did the diaspora in South Florida play in this election? Well, joining us now is Tim Padgett, WLRN, America's editor. Tim, thank you so much for the time. Um, you. Briefly describe who is Gustavo Petro. Why is he such a polarizing figure in Colombia? Well, he's a senator, a federal senator, uh, but more importantly, in the eyes of many, he's a former leftist guerrilla uh, who was part of the M-19 guerrilla movement uh, during the uh, half-century-long civil war in, in Colombia. And so that's the main reason, as you point out, that he's a polarizing figure there. And uh, he does bring a leftist agenda to to his political platform. And that has a lot of uh, conservatives in Colombia, especially and especially here in the expat community, worried that he'll move Colombia in, in the direction of the uh, authoritarian socialist regime next door in Venezuela. First of all, how did he do it? How is he the first leftist to win the presidency? Well, he was able to garner enough of the centrist votes, such as it exists in, in, in Colombia, because of, I think, one big factor, the pandemic. Let's let's remember that uh, he lost to the right wing uh, candidate, Ivan Duque, who's been president of Colombia for the past four years, uh, part of what's known as the Uribista political movement, sort of a right wing political movement in Colombia. He lost in 2018 quite uh, uh, by quite a large margin. Um, but he decided to run again, and he was helped, as I said, by the fact that the pandemic that hit Colombia wrecked its economy. And that changed a lot of people's attitudes in Colombia about what they wanted from their government in terms of social programs, in terms of especially remedying this gaping economic inequality that Colombia has. It's actually it's it's some of the worst in the Western Hemisphere, if not the world. And so all of those factors, and you'll remember that during the pandemic, because of that uh, Colombian citizen dissatisfaction, if not anger, uh, on numerous occasions, Colombians went out and, and uh, took part in angry street protests. And again, that helped Petro because uh, they saw him as the candidate who was going to push to achieve those social programs that they felt could help them economically. And those social programs were something that were part of the peace agreement. You'd, you'd mentioned in your commentary that the, those who stood against the peace agreement really kind of helped him out. Yes, uh, I, I think you have to come to that conclusion because 
one of the things, ironically, that Ivan Duque got elected for back in 2018 was this sort of fear mongering that the, the 2016 peace agreement that was uh, struck between the government and the Marxist guerrillas and which allowed the Marxist guerrillas to become a political party contained in it a lot of social projects such as land reform, education, uh, bringing desperately needed infrastructure to rural Colombia, all the sort of things that uh, will help prevent a future civil war in Colombia, let's say. Duque won because he convinced enough voters in 2018 that that peace plan would actually just sort of open the door to socialism uh, in, in Colombia. Well, again, as I said, the pandemic sort of turned the tables on him and it made more Colombians want their government to start prioritizing those social programs that were part of the peace plan. And again, they saw Petro as the guy who would do that. Tell me a little bit about his running mate, uh, Francia Marquez. She's the country's first black vice president. What, what role did she play in this? I think she she is very much a part of the green movement. The uh, One of the big platform planks for Gustavo Petro was uh, he's suggesting that, that they should do away eventually with uh, fossil fuel production in Colombia and start replacing it with greener, more renewable energy. That's also been a, a, a big topic in, in Colombia in recent years. And she's she was very much a symbol of that movement. And I think that brought some uh, more environmentally conscious voters, let's say, in Colombia to the fold. And uh, but but she is a very historic choice because there there also is has been, as in the United States and other countries in this hemisphere, uh, a lot of discrimination against Afro-Colombians and, and her nomination as, as his running mate. And now the fact that she's going to be the first black vice president in Colombia's history was seen as a real breakthrough. All right. You mentioned it a couple of times. This is the fear. Obviously, he's a leftist, that it was good. he was going to push the country to towards socialism, that it could become another Venezuela. But, I mean, Colombia's, you know, its institutions, its system, its relationship to the United States, could it become a Venezuela? I don't think so. Again, it, it's tempting because of Petro's politics and the fact that he really has never really come out and condemned uh, the socialist dictatorship in Venezuela as forcefully as many had hoped he would. Um, but as you point out, I don't think this is Venezuela 1999 when the socialist revolution there took power. Venezuela's institutions were so weak and in, in such a dysfunctional condition back then that it was easy for a leftist revolutionary like Hugo Chavez, who, who, who led that revolution, to start dismantling a lot of the democratic infrastructure in Venezuela, particularly since he had billions and billions of dollars of oil wealth at that time uh, to, to work with. I don't think that's the situation in Colombia. I think Colombia's democratic institutions are in stronger condition to sort of resist any effort that Petro makes to sort of swing Colombia uh, to the left as, as the Chavistas did in Venezuela. And also he doesn't have either A, the financial resources that Chavez had in Venezuela back then, or the sort of compliant Congress. Uh, we forget, too, that, that things were so bad in Venezuela that Chavez also had uh, quite a large majority in Congress right. back then to help him out. Petro won't have that. He won by just a little bit over 50%, so he really doesn't even have what we would call a mandate. Right. Well, you know what? It, it, 
It happened, so we'll see. We'll keep following the story, of course. And I'm just going to point again to your commentary, which is on the website, WLRN.org. Please check it out. Tim, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Lewis. Again, Tim Padgett, WLRN America's editor. Again, find that commentary also on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Well, tomorrow will mark a year since the tragic Surfside condo collapse. Champlain Tower South, the 12-story beachfront condo, unexpectedly crumbled in the early hours of the morning that day, killing 98 people. Law enforcement, rescue teams, and faith leaders were among the first to respond to the scene. A year later, the site is starkly different. It's an empty lot. The first responders and international rescue teams have left, but faith leaders are still there, providing relief and guidance to the community. We're joined now by Rabbi Yossi Harlick. He's a sh- uh, chaplain with the Miami-Dade County Police Department and director of the Shabbat Center of Kendall and Pinecrest. Rabbi Harlick, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. You know, thinking about marking one year since the tragedy, how, it is, how has it affected your own faith over the past year? You know, the darkest day of June 24th, 2021, was a very dark day and a tragic day for so many, so many people, hundreds of people. But yet you also got to see something very, very beautiful, that you saw the whole community coming together. You saw all levels of the government coming together, from the president, the senators, the mayor, the governor, um, first responders, chaplains, all came together. And they all came together for one thing to hopefully to rescue people from the building or to, um, if they can't rescue them, bring them back to the family. So what it brought, I had, once again, renewed my faith in humanity, renewed my faith in that we're all children of God. And everyone felt, you know, I remember being in the room when the president came and he met with the families and they asked the chaplains to be there because in case someone gets real agitated, they don't want the Secret Service stopping them, they'd rather chaplain, or we already had relationships with them, which we were there for all the notifications, and we were there for the briefings. And I remember looking around the room, and I saw the president and the first lady, and the governor and the first lady, and the mayor and the senators, and the first responders and the families, and I didn't see Republicans or Democrats. We saw all people, children of God, all wanting the same thing, all hoping the same thing, all dreaming the same thing, all caring about the same thing, and realizing, you know what? We really are an amazing nation, amazing community, and we all want the same thing. So for me, obviously, you know, it was a painful thing, but there was something else that's so beautiful that I saw. I, I, I agree with you 100%, and it's sad that it takes a tragedy to remind us that we are all one. You spent a lot of time at the scene giving guidance with the survivors and families and the first responders. Have you kept in touch with any of those folks since? Yes. I'm close with a lot of the first responders till today. I'm very involved with the families, a lot of families throughout the year. I made sure to call them before the holidays, before Mother's Day, Father's Day. You know, there's a lot of different uh, families that are obviously, for everyone it's very, very difficult, but you want to make sure that they don't feel that you're only there for them for 30 days, but you deal with them throughout the year. Just yesterday there was a the Langsville family that had a dedication in Doral. He texted me, could you be there? I just showed up there to give him a hug and say, we're there for you. Family members get in touch with us because we're also, as chaplains and rabbis, there a lot of Jewish people in the building. And when they pulled out, they were returning, obviously, the bodies to the family members, which we were involved doing the prayers when they pulled out the body from the pile, as we call it, the holy pile. Um, also, when they pulled out religious items, the first responders don't know what is a Bible and prayer book 
especially if they're written in Hebrew. So we were involved in identifying it, and if a lot of times the names are written in Hebrew, so they could put it on the side for them and return it to the family. So we went involved with that, and, you know, whatever the family members need, that they reach out to us, so I reached out to them to make sure they realize we're always there with them. Yeah. Tell me about the Jewish community in Surfside a year later. How has it changed? I mean, in general, nothing to do with the story of Surfside. It was a big uh, migration from New York down to um, surf, to Surfside, Bell Harbor, that whole area of Hollywood. So there's a lot, a lot of people that moved in even more than they were there a year ago. But one thing you found, the community came very much together. You know, I don't live personally, don't live in Surfside. I'm a Kendall and Pinecrest, but I was at the scene because Miami Dade took over the scene, and I'm a chaplain with Miami Dade. But talking to people that live in the community, they saw there's a certain thing that, that brought them all together. Before it was every one individual, you know, lived their life. But this, unfortunately, it's an unfortunate thing, but it brought them all together, feeling that now we're a strong community and we're not going to allow, you know, a building that collapsed to completely wipe out the community. You know, one of the things I shared with the families when I was praying with them when they switched from um, search and rescue to search and recovery is that although the building collapsed, you know, a house could collapse, but a home always remains. And that love and those experiences and the good times you had together and the spiritual moments you had together, that's something that's always going to remain. And although I passed the building, you know, yesterday, Sorry, just, uh, yesterday I passed the building, and the building is gone, but the spirit and the holiness and the good things that were accomplished in that building will always remain connected to the family. There is, as you know, there's a temporary memorial at the site now. Uh, it's a banner with the names and the ages of those who died. There are plans for a permanent memorial, which will come once you know it's decided what's going to happen with the land. But what would you like to see as a permanent memorial? You know... As a rabbi, always we, we in our Jewish tradition, we always tell people the greatest memorial you could do for a fam, for a person, is we believe the soul exists before the person is born and is there after the person passes away. And the greatest memorial you could do is to live the life that they they want to live and they live that you keep their soul alive. So the greatest memorial is to continue to do the things that were important to them. So you make sure not only they live till June twenty fourth, twenty twenty one, but they continue living and they continue to remain connected to you and 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 that is important especially in a, in a, in a day when it's uh, considered the year of the day of the passing is a very special day connecting you and their soul so that's the greatest memorial what technically they're going to do on the site that's a very personal thing for the family some families tell me they don't want to even go to the site some families say they want it to be built on the place some families say they want it to be in the park some say they want it to be in the, it's a very personal feeling but like I said before, the greatest memorial you could do for a loved one is to continue to live the life. That means you're keeping their soul alive through you, and that connection will always remain. You devote your life to helping people, but I wonder for you, how do you how do you find healing? You know, because there's a lot you're putting on your shoulders here. Yeah. So you know, one of the questions that people ask me is, how did you feel when you went through this whole this whole process? And it's interesting because, you know, on a personal level, it was, I was wondering myself as I was going through it, like I seemed very more matter-of-fact and focusing on all the different parts that I had to be involved with, from the first responders to the notifications and the, and the, and the, when they were doing the briefings and trying to kind of be in all different parts to be able to help where, where I can. 
And I wasn't getting so emotionally caught up with it versus other times I'm not like I don't get emotional about sad stories. And I was explaining that when you're in the front lines, you kind of shut off your emotions and you kind of deal with it. And to me, it's like I think about a lot. It's like, why did I become a chaplain? In 2005, they asked me to become a chaplain for Miami Day, and I wasn't even sure myself. But I said, if they asked me, I'm going to do it. And I did it. And I never believed that one day how important the role me and the other chaplains are going to have to be able to make a difference in so in hundreds of people's lives. So the way I deal with it is I think about, you know, when the opportunity comes your way, God puts you there for a certain reason, and it's up to you what you're going to do with it. The other thing is what made this tragedy so, diff- so different than anything else that we've dealt with is that um, you don't, you know, God forbid you expect your plane crashes and you expect, sadly, people going into schools and doing shootings. You don't expect living in a, in a building overlooking the water and the building collapses, 120 you're alive and 124 you're gone. So reinforces again that every day has to be meaningful. Every day you go to sleep, you don't know if you're going to wake up tomorrow. And it shouldn't get you depressed. It should get, you know what, I got to make today, Thursday, meaningful. I have a chance to talk to you right on the radio and hopefully me and you can inspire someone. Then we know we made it a, a meaningful day. So for me, that's what it kind of re, you know, reminded me in a kind of in a real way. Life is short. You got to show love, unity and care and fulfill your mission and purpose in life. And, you know, we can't understand God's ways. You know, a lot of times people say, so what do you tell people as a religious leader that month when they were standing day in and day out, hoping and praying that maybe there'll be a miracle for my family? What did you tell them? There'll be a miracle. You told them to believe in God. What did you say? I said, you know what? I didn't say anything. There's nothing to say. What you do is you hug them, you give them a hug, you cry with them, and you listen to what they want to talk about. And they say, how could God do that? I say, you're right. I don't understand it. I have faith in God. It doesn't mean I have to understand. It is a painful thing. Yeah. And that's what I'm there for them. Very good advice. And Rabbi Harleg, I really appreciate you sharing with us. But more than anything, the work you do. Really do appreciate it. Thank you so, so much. God bless you, and thank you so much. All right. Again, Rabbi Yassi Harlig, a chaplain with the Miami-Dade County Police Department, director of the Shabbat Center of Kendall and Pinecrest. Again, uh, looking back one year tomorrow, on the tragedy at Surfside. We'll have more tomorrow on the Florida, the South Florida Roundup uh, and again on the news tonight at 8 on uh, All Things Considered. Well, still to come, the newest Latino USA out this week takes an intimate look at how people in Surfside are doing. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. People across South Florida and the world are remembering the community in the town of Surfside this week. For former WLRN intern and contributor Elisa Baena, the story is personal. She lives with her grandma, Tati, in Surfside, six blocks away from the site of the tragedy. She's been talking with survivors about their healing process a year later, and it's for a new episode of Latino USA. That radio program airs right here on WLRN tomorrow night, at 8 p.m. Now, ahead of that episode, Elisa spoke with Sundas Kenny Munoz about what it took to make the piece. Just a disclaimer, there is some sound in here that could be upsetting for some. The first part of this project and this episode really feels like uh-huh. a love letter of sorts to your Tati. So tell me a little bit more about her. Who is she? 
Well, I love my grandma. <laughs> she, she is, you know, my roommate now. She's my bestie. We've always had a very tight bond. I'm her first grandchild and I'm a girl. So my my grandma and my grandpa, they had two boys, which are, are my dad and my uncle. And they always wanted a girl. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're just like super tight. <laughs> And I I moved in with her kind of at the start of the pandemic because I was I was finishing up college and I felt like it was a really unique opportunity to live with my grandma as an adult. And, you know, with grandparents, you kind of you never know, like like when's the next time you're really going to be able to spend like an extended amount of time with them. And so when I kind of started living with her in her apartment in Surfside, that was really like the first time that I had spent, you know, weeks at a time or like months at a time there since I was a kid when I would stay over the weekend and and over the summers. And yeah, like some of my best memories, if not my best memories are in Surfside with my grandparents. So it just felt like a very warm and, and comfortable return to, to this place. You know, how did you get into this story through her? The night of the collapse, I, I wasn't there with her, but she she was awake. She couldn't fall asleep. She was praying the rosary and she heard this really loud noise and she didn't know if it was a bomb or an explosion. She thought maybe even it was so loud that it, it could possibly be a, an airplane that crashed into a building or something. She couldn't fall back asleep that night. And that kind of just reminded me, you know, when she was telling me the story, it kind of reminded me of the geography of this place. So like Surfside is so small. So she was six blocks away, but she could hear the the collapse. And it kind of just made me think about like, okay, where were other people in the community like at the time? And and that's from there, we kind of go to Iliana, who is, is another survivor. <laughs> and she was, you know, asleep in her bed kind of around the same time um, that this happened. And then she really becomes this central voice in your report about a year later. Tell me about who she is, because you describe her in this really wonderful way. Iliana is a 65-year-old Cuban exile and queen. <laughs> she reminds me definitely of, of my, my grandma Tati. Like, she's one of these women who just always looks super elegant and she's really really warm so the first time that i talked to her on the phone when when we were scheduling you know the time that we were going to meet up she was calling me mirena and she was telling me about her boyfriend <laughs> i was on my way to salsa class so i was telling her about salsa class and it just she just felt like you know she felt like someone that i knew and and she she just felt very familiar to me and she is someone who has lived in Miami Beach pretty much the whole time that she's lived outside of Cuba. So she's lived in Miami Beach for about four decades. Oh my gosh. Well, let's hear her story for a few moments. She was in a deep sleep when she was awakened by a force that felt supernatural. Cuando yo me despierto, es que yo empiezo a sentir crujidos eh, por, por, por las esquinas que yo dije, Dios mío, cabrón. Habrá algo sobrenatural en esta casa. Estoy en un apartamento embrujado porque estos ruidos que raro. Entonces me levanto y voy a la sala. So once she's awake, she's like, oh my God, is there like a ghost in this house or something? 
She then gets out of bed and goes to the living room to see if maybe a sliding glass door was open. It turns out a door was open. As she's trying to close it, she hears another crunch. This one is louder. Cuando miro veo una rajadura negra que viene del del techo para abajo y mientras va bajando se va abriendo en dos, se va ensanchando. When she turns to look, she sees a crack splitting the wall in two. And that's when a voice in her head started talking to her. Me dice, Corre, que esto se va a caer. Run. This building is going to fall. She quickly changed into a dress and flip-flops. Before running out of her apartment, she grabbed her credit cards and some jewelry she had left in the dining room table the night before. The last thing she did was blow out her candle for La Virgen de Guadalupe. Al lado de mi apartamento había una escalera muy cerquita que me, me llevaba abajo. Y por ganar tiempo, esa era la que lógicamente yo tendría que haber tomado. Pero a mí mi mente me mandó a la que estaba en la esquina del pasillo después de los ascensores. There was a stairwell a few feet to the right of her unit. And that would have been a more obvious choice if she wanted to save time. But no. The voice sent her to the left, down the hall, past the elevators, to the other stairwell. Yo lo agarré en el sexto piso. Cuando llegué por el cuarto, sentí aquella explosión infernal que yo sabía que el edificio se había caído. She had only come down two flights of stairs when she heard what she describes as an infernal explosion. She just knew it. The building was coming down. I'm wondering, when you were putting the painful pieces of this puzzle together, reporting out this long story, this long narrative, and you're finding out these personal accounts of weeks of different people's experiences. And I'm just mm -hmm. wondering, you know, you, you talk to a lot of people in addition to Ileana, but how did you gain the trust of people who survived this? I really just led with the fact that I'm a community member. I just let them know, you know, first and foremost, I consider myself a member of this community. I, I've been here for the last year. It's not like, you know, I'm, I'm a reporter from New York or something or, or DC that flew in. I also really just wanted them to know that they could share their story if it was something that they really wanted to do. But there was no like obligation, obviously. There was no like compromiso if, if we had like a mutual connection or or if even if if we had kind of built up that trust. I, I didn't want anyone to feel like they they were obligated in any way to to share their story with me. I did meet people in, in the Surfside community who shared with me that they simply were not ready to talk about their experience yet. And they, they said, you know, this is something that is still really painful for me. So, so I'd rather not do it. And then I, and then I did meet people like Ileana and like the Lopez family that told me, you know, I, I want to tell my story. I think it's important to tell my story and their experiences were different because for example, Ileana, when, when she was, was, sharing her experience with me and telling me kind of just what the last year of her life has been. She told me, you know, this is incredibly painful and it makes me really sad to, 
tell you all of this, but it's my story, it's my life, and I need people to hear it from me. And the Lopez family, they told me, you know, after our conversation, they were like, you know what, <laughs> this was actually really cathartic, and and I actually feel better now af- after talking about it. So it people have different experiences, but everybody, I guess, has their own reason. I'm speaking with Elisa Baena. She's a former intern here at WLRN and a contributor. We're talking about the episode that she reported out for Latino USA out this week, and she tells a beautiful story about the community in the town of Surfside and how survivors are doing a year after the tragic condo collapse that took 98 people's lives and how it's changed her own relationship to this place. You can hear that episode of Latino USA, really a full hour of these stories that Elise has collected, right here on WLRN at 8 p.m. on Friday, June 24th. Well, and you do, you mentioned the Lopez's and you spoke with them. It's a husband and wife and they also survived. Let's hear from them. They lived with their son on the sixth floor of the Champlain Towers South for 23 years, most of their son's life. I woke up to uh, to the apartment, you know, shaking. I was mm. bounce, like actually bouncing in the bed. We heard a noise, but I thought it was like a, an explosion. That first sound was the pool deck collapsing into the garage. And I remember Marion saying, you know, it's probably only like a bad, you know, bad storm or something. And before she could finish saying that, then we mm-hmm. heard a huge, a much louder explosion. When Alfredo opened his front door out to the hallway, he was startled by the breeze from the beach. To the left of me, which is on the north side, was our neighbor, Estelle, and she was in apartment 604. And there was no apartment there. There was no apartment 603, 602, 601, 611. Yeah, the whole uh, hallway. Ileana, the Cuban exile we heard from in the first part of the show, lived in unit 611. Her apartment, by the time that we got out, her apartment disappeared. So, you know, how she got out that night, I just don't know how she did that. I don't know how she did that. What stood out to you the most collecting these stories? And what do people really need now going forward? What do the Lopez's need now? In a lot of ways, this is a piece about memory and and kind of the, the different forms and the different roles that memory has in you know, trauma and and also like your relationship to a place and your home and displacement and all these things. But Marion and Alfredo, they had very different, not very different, like memories of that night. But, you know, Alfredo would share his memory of of that night. And then Marion would butt in and be like, I don't remember that at all. What when did that happen? You know, and they kept they kind of kept going back and forth. And that's something that they're still kind of trying to sort sort out through through trauma therapy and and through their relationships with other survivors and and their relationship with with each other is kind of just what happened that night and and how do we kind of like move forward um but in terms of what people really need moving forward i think it's answers i i think we need to know those those of us who still live in Surfside. We we need to know if this is a, a safe place for us to live, and and we want to make sure that something like this never happens again. When you explored throughout this piece, you know the, these feelings of loss that people shared, and people who who lived through this tragic event still lost so much. And I'm wondering, you know, carrying all of this, thinking about a project of this scope, like how did this affect you 
in the reporting process? If I'm being totally honest, I felt so much loss when I was working on this story. I it it made me kind of sit with and have to understand my own feelings of loss that that I have attached to Surfside. My grandpa, he passed away unexpectedly when I was 16 and and that was a a really tough time for me. He he was a really important you know, person in my life and and he helped raise me. And for a long time after he died, I actually did not want to be in Surfside. Like I completely avoided being in my grandma's house. You know, as I was working on this story, I, I kind of came to the realization that it is possible to continue to live in a place and love a place that you kind of associate with tragedy or loss it, it's kind of it's it's always going to be a different relationship you're always going to have a different experience there and a different connection to it and something like the like the Champlain Towers South Collapse it kind of like marked this this before and after in Surfside's identity as a town if you will or like our collective memory Well, and this is a devastating and tragic story, but how you covered it is really beautiful. You managed to find these moments of light and humanity and in this dark story. And I'm wondering if you feel like you went out to look for those light moments or did the light more find you along the way? I was really hesitant to to do this story, to be honest with you. I, because it's, you know, it's only been a year, right? And I didn't know if this was, the time to to tell the story i don't know because i was like are people healed what what is healing like i had all these questions and i kind of just started talking to to my neighbors and kind of just like asking around like how are you feeling and and do you want to talk about this are you ready to talk about this and along the way like because i live there and like surfside is is such <laughs> it's it's just a normal place it's like a a small town in in Miami that like sometimes to me it doesn't even feel like I'm in Miami it feels like I'm in I don't know Stars Hollow or or something from Gilmore Girls like everybody like seems to be connected to each other and there's like funny gossip and when when I started like meeting people for the story or as a result of the story we just kept having all of these light moments You spoke with a trauma psychologist, a local Catholic priest, and even a bakery owner who felt loss after some of his customers died in the collapse. What do you Mm -hmm. want people who hear this episode of Latino USA to take away and learn from hearing their stories? Something that I kept thinking about when I was working on this story and and after the collapse happened was just the, the juxtaposition between, you know, the beach, which is seemingly like this safe, peaceful, idyllic setting. And then the pile of rubble, you know? And I think that that for a lot of people in the community, you know, the people that that I talked to and and people who aren't in the piece that I that I just had conversations with in my building or or just around town, you know, a building collapsed in the middle of the night in our small chill low-key town that not that many people knew about even within Miami and definitely not across the world there was there was kind of like a almost a feeling of loss I think 
obviously for for the people who who passed away and the people who who were still lost at that point but also kind of like like this feeling of you know is is this place that that i loved and this place that i live in and this place that i thought that i knew is it really that same place or will it ever be that place again i think that the way that we can honor those who lost their lives and should never have lost their lives is is by continuing to you know love this place and continuing to make memories here and and enjoy the beach like the loggerhead sea turtles are coming to you know lay their nests here and they're just the other day there was jazz on the beach and so i think that the way that we like honor those who died is is by making sure that that this is a, a safe place to live and this is a, a good place to live well there are signs of healing and your piece is is one of those signs thank you very much for reporting this story out elisa thank you so much that was elisa Baena, former wlrn intern and contributor speaking with sundial's lead producer katie munoz Again, about her upcoming piece that looks at the community one year after the tragedy in Surfside. If you want to hear the whole piece, That Latina USA airs tomorrow night here on WLRN at 8 p.m. Well, still to come, they're not just a hockey team. For Wildlife Thursday, we're checking in on the Florida Panther. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. It is Wildlife Thursday, and today we're going to discuss one of the most beloved and most endangered species in our state, the Florida panther. The Florida panther almost disappeared off the face of the earth not that long ago, but over the decades, there have been a lot of efforts to rebuild their population. And it's not easy to protect them because they live in a small area, and that area is being squeezed by roads and development. Well, joining us now is Dr. Dave Honorado. He's the research scientist for the Florida Panther Project at the Fish and Wildlife Research Institute as part of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Dave, it is such a pleasure. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Good afternoon. All right. So let's just start with this. How, how is the Florida Panther doing right now? How's the population doing? Uh, well, they're doing a lot better than they were, you know, in the 80s and early 1990s, um, you know, in that period of time down here in, in South Florida. We probably only had about 20 to 30 panthers. Um, today, we're at you know about 120 to 230 uh, panthers in South Florida. So um, you know, a much better place uh, than we were back in that time period. Do we know what is the biggest killer? Is it still because I, I mean I see the stories from time to time. Another panther killed, hit by a car or truck. Yeah, yeah. Road mortality is uh, still you know the number one cause of death of panthers um, that we document, um, you know, every year, at least in the last, you know, 10 years, we document anywhere from 15 to, you know, uh, 30 panthers will get hit by cars. So um, it's, it's certainly an important cause of mortality um, for Florida panthers. And you look at the, the area that they exist in, and I know that, I mean, I've, I've seen some of uh, the maps, but also uh, one of your videos and, and, and some of them are spotted further North, but a lot of them are, you know, really down here in the southern part of the state. But mm -hmm. what's happening to that area? Uh, you know, because Florida's popular, a lot of people want to move here. That means more development. 
Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, so the, the, the breeding range of panthers, um, the main breeding range is in South Florida from the Caloosahatchee River down, you know, to Everglades National Park. And so that's where the majority of the, the breeding population resides. And certainly, like you mentioned, you know, Florida, I think we're at what, about 22 million uh, residents at the moment, lots of people moving down here. And so, you know, all those people require more housing. Uh, more apartments. And so that steadily does whittle away at the, the remaining wild areas that we have. Um, so that's uh, when it comes down to the long-term perspective for panthers, you know, finding ways um, to mitigate that habitat loss is going to be very important um, for the long-term persistence of the population. I've got to, I always say it on this program. I'm still, I, I've lived in Florida for 40 years and I've never seen one. Not lot, not out in the wild, and I'm uh, waiting for that chance. When's the first time you saw one? Uh, yeah, I didn't uh, see one until I came down here and started cheating um, as a scientist uh, in order <laughs> to see one with a with a radio collar. I can tell you that you know, obviously, the more time you spend out the woods, the higher probability you have of seeing one. But like you know, they are endangered. There are very few of them. But you know, we get the random person that's down here for the first time. And just taking a stroll on a path on the on the east side of Naples, and they'll see one. And then you'll have someone like yourself that says they've been here forty years, and you've probably been out in the woods and you've never seen one. Um, I know. So don't, don't, don't remind me. I know. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, all this all this time you've spent studying them now. What what is something you could tell us about the personality of the Florida Panther? Something we don't think about. Um. Well, one thing is is the huge amount of area that they use um, in, in what's called their home range. So, you know, a male panther home range can get up to 200 square miles and kind of grasping something of that size is, is difficult. You know, if you put it down on a map, something that maybe some of your listeners would, would relate to more would be, you know, if you drew a circle that went from Coral Gables to Miramar and from Miami Beach over to the Everglades, you know, that's the home range size of a male panther. And they're just, it's not like they're rapidly moving through these home ranges. They're just uh, kind of just say slow and steady wins the game. They, they're just always moving, always moving to the next part, to the next part of that home range. So, so they're really, um, they're long range kind of walkers. <laughs> mm, mm. What, what, what drew you in? What, you know, what is it about the Florida Panther for you? Um, well, like many people, you know, I'm not from here originally. I've, I've lived here over, you know, 25 years now, but um, I used to come down here as a kid to South Florida and, you know, was always interested in wildlife and was reading the stories when there were only, you know, 10 to 20, 20 to 30 panthers left, um, you know, reading the stories about big guy, the, uh, a male panther that was hit on the road and they tried to rehab him and captive breeding attempts. And so I just remember re- reading about all that stuff as a kid and was really interested and it and followed the news through the years. Uh, And then ultimately, you know, had this opportunity to come down here and actually be part of the program. Um, Certainly a privilege, Um, you know, programs like this that study an animal for so long um, and learn so much about it are are kind of the exception as opposed to the rule. And so um, it's great to be part of a program that's had, you know, such a long lineage of, of quality staff working on this animal to try to uh, protect it and recover it for Floridians. That to me is still the the thing that get it gets me. It's like wow, they were twenty away from disappearing, that they were that close to almost being gone forever. 
Again, talking with Dr. Dave Honorado. He's a research scientist at the Florida Panther Project. Uh, it's Wildlife Thursday, and we're talking about Florida Panthers. By the way, all right, if you're one of those people who's ever seen one, if you got a picture, you could share it on our social media. Uh, but if you have a question, too, you could also post it on Facebook or Twitter at WLRN Sundial. Um, how many of how many of the of, of the Florida Panthers are are tagged? Is it what they have an electronic GPS collar, right? Is that what you use? Yeah, we do use two different kinds of technology. Traditionally, it's been the VHF collars that we requires us to uh, locate those by flying for them. Because again, they cover these huge swaths of the landscape um, where there aren't roads in South Florida. And so uh, those older collars require us to find them from the air. There are collars now that we deploy that actually, you know, send us the data via text message or to a, a server so we can actually log in and see where that animal has been and you know, over the last day or two and, and get an understanding of the habitats they're using. So it's um, two different uh, collar types that we're using at the moment. I think right now we're, we're at kind of a, a low point in terms of collared animals. I think we have about five on the air. Um, we've had as many as 30. It just depends on the research objectives that we have um, according to how many would be collared. So is there any effort to tag more? Yeah, I mean, um, currently right now, one of the focuses uh, trying to learn a bit more about this disorder that we documented in bobcats and panthers. It's called, it's a fancy name, uh, feline leukomyelopathy. It's, they, they kind of get this neurological disorder in their hind legs. Um, and it's potentially problematic for panthers and, and bobcats. So um, that's the focus of several of our projects now. And it does entail um, radio collaring some more animals uh, in areas where we're seeing that disorder. Is that, is that a permanent disorder? By the way, I've seen the video, uh, because you have like a camera and it shows a couple of Panthers with this disorder walk by and they can't walk Their Their hind yeah. legs just don't, they're not stable. It's really sad to see, but is that permanent? Yeah, well, it is a neurological disorder. So typically, you know, coming back from that type of damage, um, to the nerve system um, is not generally something that happens. So um, we are seeing it most frequently. Again, not huge numbers of cases, but you know, given that um, these are panthers and they're endangered, you know, we want to make sure we keep on top of things. And it's also interesting how it's also showing up in bobcats. Um, so, so yeah, um, no, I don't think that it's something that they um, most cases, at least in the wild, would recover from. It's it's permanent damage. There's different levels. Some of them will be like the video you're describing where they're pretty severely affected. And we've also seen cases where the animals are less affected. So um, still a lot to learn um, in terms of the root cause of this. Um, and that's kind of the focus at this point in time. We, we, we don't have that nailed down yet. Um, again, a very, it, it is, it's a difficult video to see. You know, you've, you've asked, you've been asked this question a lot, I'm sure. When the Panther was down to the last 20 or 30, there was obviously the effort to bring in other pumas from elsewhere to help expand the populations. And now we've gotten the populations up a bit. But obviously people ask, wait a second, when you breed different types of cats, how much of the Florida panther is still the Florida panther? Yeah, so I always kind of respond to that question uh, with, with the following. You know, historically, panthers ranged across the southeastern United States. And there was genetic interchange between panthers and other populations of pumas in North America, specifically Texas and, um, you know, the cougars that used to be up in, in the uh, Appalachians and whatnot. Um, so, you know, we, uh, you know, one, way, one reason or another um, have isolated panthers in South Florida. 
And so the Panthers, when there were only 20 to 30 left, um, were not really <laughs> representing what Panthers used to look like before they became isolated. So by bringing in those eight females from Texas in 1995, we basically mimicked the gene flow that used to happen naturally between those populations, but no longer happens because panthers are the only breeding population of pumas east of the Mississippi River, and so and they're isolated. So uh, that in and of itself kind of mimicked that gene flow. And so I retort that question uh, by saying <laughs> that it's they're more like the true panthers that used to be here before we got them isolated. All right. Good answer. I like that. Briefly, Dave, tell me, you know, we have, again, development, sea level rise, increased temperatures, all these things. How do you feel about the future of the panther? I mean, some of the modeling work we've done has shown that panthers should, um, if things remain as they are today, should persist uh, for the long term. But yes, those are, when when it comes down to, the panthers always say, you know, there's three things that are important for panthers and it's habitat, habitat, and habitat. And I mean, it's, it all comes down to that to the end. Genetics is something we need to always monitor, but um, as well, but really is maintaining enough wild spaces for the wildlife that all Floridians and most Floridians seem to really love um, is critical to help uh, keeping Panthers around for the long term. Oh, I hope we don't mess this one up. Dave, I really <laughs> appreciate this. Thank you. I'm gonna I want to end on a good note. So thank you so much for the insight. I really appreciate it. No problem. You have a good day. You too. Again, that's Dr. Dave Honorado. He's the research scientist of the Florida Panther Project for the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. And remember, again, we'd love to hear from you. Any any thoughts or questions, any experiences you've had with the Florida Panther, share it with us on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Well, that's our program for this Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. Coming up next week on the program, we're going to have a solar power program. We're going to have an explainer on solar energy. So if you've ever had any questions about solar power, now is the time to ask it. And here's how you could do it. Find us on Facebook at WLRN Sundial, or text us the question, 786-677-0767. Again, that's 786-677-0767. Any question at all about how to install, how it's used, how it works, is it worth it? All of it. We're going to have a big explainer to try to help you get those answers next week. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful Friday. Have a great weekend. We're back live on Monday. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.